Hey everybody, welcome to the Asian Boss Podcast. The following is a conversation with Joey Bezinger, aka the Anime Man. Joey is an Australian Japanese voice actor, songwriter, podcaster, and is also one of the top anime review YouTubers in Japan, man of many talents. Joey has been introducing Japanese subcultures to the global audience for many years. So, how did he manage to turn his hobby into a profession? And what's it like living as a half Japanese person in Japan? Our guest host Kay was able to sit down with Joey for a chat, so let's dive right in. You're listening to the Asian Boss Podcast. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Joey. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries, Kay.、Um, glad to be on. Yeah, thank you. Um, for、mm. the people who might not know you,、um, how would you introduce yourself? So, I guess the easiest way would just be that I'm a YouTuber who talks about anime,、uh, kind of otaku culture, Japanese subcultures, just interesting things about Japan. You know, kind of, kind of like what you guys do, really, on Asian Boss, <laughs> but with a lower budget. So, yeah, I do that.、Um, I am also a co host of、uh, a visual podcast show called Trash Taste that I do with two of my friends.、Um, I also do music under the name Ikuru. I do voice acting stuff under a couple of names. Yeah, I'm just kind of a whatever I feel like kind of guy, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a, I guess the easiest way to just say is, yeah, I'm just a YouTuber. Yeah. It's quite interesting because I almost feel like you might have a pretty similar upbringing from me because you're originally from Sydney. Yes. Yeah. And I've been living in Sydney for 20 years of my life. And,、um, and I, I'm also,、uh, my father's Japanese, mother's German、mm. in my particular case.、Um, mm -hmm. So, how did you actually get to this point of? Being the anime man. <laughs> how, how did you? How did, were you born in Australia? Were you born in Japan? Like, could you, could you give us a big, bit of a、uh, you know, history? Sure.、Um, so, yeah, as you said,、uh, I, I was also born and raised in Sydney. My father is、uh, German Hungarian, born Australian, and my mother is Japanese.、Um, I was born and raised in Sydney. Uh, until I was the age of 21, 22, when I graduated Sydney University.、Um, and then I moved to Japan, so I've been here for six years now. Japanese was kind of a first language for me, but also kind of a second language. So I, I kind of learned English and Japanese at the same time. So my father would teach me the alphabet.、Uh, at the same time, my mom would teach me hiragana and katakana and all that kind of stuff. And then obviously, living in Australia, English just you know, kind of became the norm since everyone around me spoke English, obviously. But、uh, Japanese was a bit of a different story because, you know, other than my childhood friends and my mom's friends and stuff like that, there weren't really a lot of Japanese people, especially around my neighborhood. So Japanese was kind of a, a choice, really, for me as to whether I actually wanted to speak it and kind of get involved with the culture. And I guess from a very young age, I was. Immediately interested in Japanese, I'd have to say. It was just kind of a fascinating language to me, and I enjoyed speaking it. And we had this like unspoken rule in our house where if I spoke to my mom in English, she wouldn't respond to me. And that was kind of her way to get me to speak as much Japanese to her as possible.、Um, you know, it, it really effective. But at the same time, slightly traumatic, especially when you're a three year old child who just got completely ignored by their own mother. <laughs> Without knowing that rule.、Uh, 
Um, but I think because of that, uh, you know, I not only grew kind of an appreciation towards the Japanese language, but I was also just kind of like put in a position where I was forced to speak it and learn it. For me, I think I really only learned Japanese because I used to go to the Sydney Japanese school for about five and a half years or so. So Wait, you, you mean the one in Terry Hills, right? Yeah, the one in Terry Hills. That's I correct. went to that as well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. I, went, I, I went to that uh, until I think I was in year three. Right. Were you in the Japanese yeah. class or the international segment? I was in the international. Uh, I was in the international segment, yeah. I was in the full-on Japanese one, so... Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so what happened was, when I was eight, I went to the Japanese school, and all of a sudden, every exam is in Japanese, so literally, right. I was just failing everything. <laughs> so this is because everybody else is Japanese, and right. I'm just surprised that, you know, you picked up on all the writing, um, especially when you haven't really been educated in the Japanese system. How did you learn the language? Was it through anime and was it through like mangas, for example? I'd say a lot of that, you know, definitely came into, you know, into help, obviously, you know, kind of, especially when it comes to reading and stuff like that, I kind of gradually, you know, like how Japanese kids do where, you know, they would start with things like Koro Koro Komiku, which is more for like, you know, primary school kids. And then you move on to like Shonen Jump and stuff like that. And kind of anime has this like, anime and manga I feel has this like kind of trajectory that is, you know, very, uh, what is it? It's, it's kind of, you know, there's age appropriate media for each of those things. My mom always said that I was a really weird kid uh, when it came to how I learned Japanese because there would be times where I was, you know, maybe age nine or ten years old and she would come into my room and i'd be lying on the floor reading the kanji dictionary and that just that doesn't happen <laughs> that do, which you know yeah you know if if my kid did that i would also probably think what the hell's wrong with this kid so i totally understand why my mom thought that um but you know because i'm very much a, a visual learner from a young age so i think just looking at these like really funky, like complicated, you know, kanji characters, I think it's something in that, you know, something clicked in in my in my mind where I found a lot of interest towards it. And, you know, I was kind of like, oh, there's this weird symbol that I've never seen before. What other weird symbols could there be out there that, you know, hold meanings and stuff like that? And I think, you know, obviously reading manga and stuff like that and kind of getting better at reading also drove that curiosity to like learn more and you were going to australian school after that yeah one of your parents is japanese and i'm assuming that a lot of the people around you was australian probably yeah yeah did you feel a difference there or i don't know how was it like pretty much until university i was the only asian kid in my school um so obviously even though i don't look it as much and I didn't look you know full-on Asian you know obviously just knowing that fact from kids it's very much a, a talking point right so you know some people took that very kindly others not so much I, I got bullied a little bit for it as well you know understandably it was a little bit weird at first but then I think I kind of really touched upon my Australian side by going to that school and I grew a lot a big appreciation towards my non-Japanese side because of that. And, you know, I, I feel if I never went to a school like that, I don't think I would really be in touch with my Australian side as much as I ended up being. So I think it was kind of a nice balance and a, and a necessary balance for me to, you know, not lose my 
way, I guess, or like not lose my identity as much. Yeah. I might have had the opposite issue just because I also went I went to the Japanese school until I was year nine, but it was mm. almost like um, I was slightly bullied from Japanese kids just because they're so competitive <laughs> because they right. have to go to like a high school after that and yeah. they have to study a lot and etc. and they're you mm. know they're just stressed out. Uh, mm -hmm. Well. <laughs> that's just that's just the overall feel I just got. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, I had some good moments and fun moments too. Mm. But how did you get bullied, like from the Australian side? Mm, well, obviously, you know, me being not fully Australian or not fully white, quote unquote, um, you know, was already just like a low hanging fruit for a lot of kids. Um, but I think also just because my interests were very different to the norm, um, especially my high school, I went to a high school uh, that was predominantly sports focused, and I definitely wasn't a sporty kid in high school. I, I you know, I, I did sports and like tennis and stuff like that and, you know, whatnot during primary school. But then when I moved on to high school, I was definitely more in touch with like the arts. So I did a lot of like music stuff and Obviously, anime back then, when I was in school, wasn't as well known as it is today for a lot of school kids, right? So when kids found out that I enjoy these Japanese cartoons called anime at age, you know, 14, 15, which is normally the age where you shouldn't be watching cartoons anymore, that was obviously, you know, easy bait for a lot of kids. Um, you know, but uh, in saying that, I wasn't like horribly bullied obviously there was like you know school bullies in every school and they were the ones who kind of like came at me a little bit for a while but i also uh managed to basically talk my friends into trying out this thing called anime they were like hey you know it might be weird at first but if you give it a go i promise you'll you'll find something cool in there and luckily my my friends at school were really cool to the point where you know they gave it a go for me and a lot of them actually got into it so you know i feel that was like a, sh a shining beacon of you know ways to get around that um you know obviously you know as i mentioned i think school kids get it really easy today because you know back when i was in school you'd get bullied for watching anime today kids get bullied for not watching anime so it's like damn you'll never understand the pain that we had to go through you know i also read somewhere that you also had like a website or something um yeah <laughs> yeah how, could you could you tell us about that yeah so i had a website uh because in year 10 i so which was 2010 which was 12 years ago jesus christ uh one of the it class assignments was that we had to create a website so we were learning about web web design and html and all that kind of stuff um and it was kind of this year-long assignment where while learning about website design we could make a website about whatever we wanted when you're in year 10, what do you want to make a website about? Obviously something you're very passionate about and interested in and something you could write and create around. And for me, that one thing was anime. So I made this website where I would write anime reviews on shows that I had seen and kind of give recommendations to people. I call them anime reviews, but they weren't anime reviews. They were, they were horrible, just like blog posts that weren't reviewing anything. So I thought, you know, I really enjoyed this assignment and I was like, well, I haven't finished writing reviews for all the shows I've seen yet, so I'll keep it. And then obviously when you have to keep a website, you have to get a domain name. So I thought, all right, well, I got to think of a domain name somehow. And at that time, there were a lot of anime review sites um, that, you know, used the word anime 
in the name. It was like, you know, AnimeGalaxy.com or AnimePlanet.com. But all the good ones were taken, all the cool ones were taken. So I thought, well, I'm a guy, a man, who likes anime. TheAnimeMan.com. So then I registered TheAnimeMan.com, and I did that, and that's where the name came from. Um, and then, yeah, I did that until uh 2013 when i entered university and then by that time somehow miraculously i had gained somewhat of like constant traffic to the website you know i had a couple of comments being like hey you should try uh video reviews for anime because they're, they're kind of the thing right now on youtube um and so i was like oh okay sure i'll, I'll give that a go so i started up my own youtube channel and I made a couple of videos to link back to my website. But then I found out that I had a lot more people actually finding me from the YouTube platform itself rather than from the website. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the start of the Anime Man YouTube channel. And that was nine years ago. And so then I had a lot more fun making videos compared to writing these like crappy reviews. So then I scrapped the website and I just focused on video creation and here we are today yeah wow well that's yeah. a, that's certainly a long time and you must have been putting so much effort on a you know daily and weekly basis to to come to this point yeah i mean you know uh, for the first two and a half years i was uploading daily while also being a full-time uni student so I don't know how I did that, to be honest. There's there's no way I could do that now. And I do this full time now. Where did this motivation come from for you? Um, Because you're still making videos all the time, right? Yeah. I feel like it hasn't really changed then. I think the only thing that's changed is that, you know, obviously now I have a little more time to kind of perfect the craft and get better at the craft. And obviously a lot more of a budget now that I can spend. Because, you know, when I started, I was just a broke uni student living at my parents' place, right? So, you know, I started off recording on a on an iPhone 3 that I had at the time and just, you know, using that and that was it. Um, but now, obviously, you know, I've got a lot more equipment, a lot more time, a lot more resources and, and connections and stuff like that. So I think it's just this, like, fun process of taking what I had been doing for all these years and just being like, okay, how do I make this better? How can I keep improving in terms of not only like the quality of the video, but also the quality of the content. And also how much can I expand upon what I already know how to make and what I already know how to do and get myself out there more. And I feel especially the last couple of years, um, you know, despite my namesake, I haven't really been making a whole lot of anime content recently, just because I personally have kind of become, I guess, creatively unsatisfied in just making cut and dry anime content not that there's anything wrong with cut and dry anime content it's still very much a thing on youtube today but me personally i find more uh, i guess you know satisfaction in making something that kind of is outside of that circle slightly but not completely out of the circle um you know i still touch upon like obviously like japanese subcultures and stuff like that and just like weird things about japan because for most people if you like anime, you also have an interest in Japan as a whole, right? So I don't I feel it's not too far off from the interests of my audience. So I'm I'm every day I'm just kind of thinking to myself, okay, how can I push that envelope to the furthest that it can go before it's completely out of the circle? Um and so far, 
I feel like I'm doing okay with it. Um, yeah, and I'm still having fun with it. And that's, and I think that's the most important thing. When did you go to Japan properly, like move to Japan? Uh, I moved to Japan, when was it, 2016? So it was the year I graduated university, yeah. Mm. And how did you feel at that moment? Because um, um, I would feel that if you're just going for a holiday sometimes versus actually moving to Japan, I mm. almost feel that there would be like a difference. Um, at least yeah. for me. I was kind of similar in a sense where I only properly went to Japan when I was 21 and before mm. that I would go on holidays but then I would actually start working there and when right, you start right. working in Japan you know you just that's another world itself and so mm. how, how did you adjust to living in Japan how was it like for you yeah it was for me it was more so like oh god I'm not living with my parents anymore now I have to actually you know start taking on all these responsibilities and paying bills and paying rent and all that kind of stuff now rather than me moving to Japan because I think in my head subconsciously Japan has just always been kind of like a second home to me so it wasn't so much of a shock of I'm moving to a different country for me personally I think also maybe because when I moved to Japan I had decided to pursue YouTube full-time like I I somehow talked my parents into being like hey can i do youtube full-time in japan it's kind of it's kind of doing all right I'm, I'm you know i'm making enough money um so you know i think uh during that time i hadn't really like looked at doing youtube as like a full-time job quote-unquote like it's it's very obviously it's very different from like a desk job at a japanese company so you know i think i also had this kind of honeymoon phase for maybe a year or two of it's it's like I've come to Japan just to like hang out and also make videos on the side. So it didn't really like sink in that this had become like a proper job for me until I started to get a little more ambitious with my content and start to, you know, get out there and obviously like join an agency and, you know, collaborate with YouTubers and start working with Japanese companies and, you know, proper like business stuff. Because up until then, I always just viewed YouTube as just a hobby that pays well. And now... You know, I still look at YouTube in that way, of course, but I think now I've understood the importance of looking at YouTube as a legitimate business. I'm curious, have have you actually worked in any other jobs itself other than just YouTube or have you have you tried other jobs? So I interned at a Japanese tech company during university for, I think, three months. And that was my because you know, I wasn't expecting YouTube to actually be a thing by the time I graduated. I thought it would just forever be a hobby. Like, I thought it would never be anywhere near what it is now. So my original intentions was always to, after university, I would move to Japan, I would join an IT company, because that's what I was majoring in university, and just kind of work as a Japanese salaryman for the rest of my life. Because I had that mentality, I was prepared for it, but... Before that, uh, no, <laughs> I, I hadn't. And it's probably why I was a broke uni student doing YouTube because uh, I, uh, there's a very famous story of how I got denied a job at McDonald's. So, you know, at that point, it's like, you know, if I can't even get a job at McDonald's, I'm, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm a little fucked. And I think my dad was like, at that point, my dad kind of was just like, well... If he can't even get a job at McDonald's, then I guess he's just screwed for the rest of his life. But luckily, YouTube pulled through like a godsend. So, uh, yeah, 
but uh, no, up until that point, I hadn't really had any job experience at all, no. Your, uh, your father is from Australia and, you know, you come to Japan. Do people uh, recognize you as like a hafu, like half, you know, Australian, half Japanese like that? Or um, do they just see you like as a foreigner or a Japanese person? For me, it's... I mean, obviously, you know, for, for a lot of Japanese people, the first thing that they have to go off is my looks. And I think to a lot of Japanese people, I am very much a foreigner. Like, I don't, I don't look Japanese at all. Um, there's a lot of people actually who don't believe that I have any Japanese in me until I start speaking Japanese. And then they realize, oh, okay, now you're Japanese. So there's always, I think I'm just going to have to live with that for the rest of my life, honestly, but I don't really mind because it always gets a, a hilarious reaction every single time. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously when Japanese people see me first, they immediately think, oh, this guy's a foreigner. He can't speak a word of Japanese. You know, he's, you know, whatever. But then the moment I open my mouth, they realize, oh, he's a foreigner, but he's also Japanese on the inside so you know th there's there's definitely like one hurdle that everyone has to go over but it's usually very easily settled and, and there's no complications or anything like that and then you know the more i talk the more i think they start to get comfortable and realize oh okay you know he's a japanese guy that's that's cool <laughs> it just kind of reminded me i was working in a japanese company just building houses at one point mm. and because i was only using japanese obviously i looked like a foreigner <laughs> if I go right. to Japan. But then right. because I was only uh, speaking Japanese at the company, they were questioning me if I spoke English. So, <laughs> so they were like, do you really speak English? I can't believe you speak English. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get that every yeah. now and then as well, actually. Like, uh, you know, if I'm with a bunch of friends and I'm just like constantly speaking Japanese, a lot of people just assume that I lived in Japan for like half my life or I went to school in Japan, but... Uh, yeah, then I have to tell them, no, I, I, I only moved like five, six years ago. And they're like, what, why is your Japanese so good? I'm like, well, because I taught myself while I was overseas. And for a lot of people, for some reason, they can't comprehend that. They're like, no, you can't, you can't just like teach yourself a language and get that good at it, right? And I'm like, yeah, you can. It's just a lot of hard work. What is the definition of hafu in Japan? What does that mean? So hafu in Japan is half Japanese, half not Japanese, whatever that may be. Uh, usually it, I think, and, and this is just my way of looking at it, but I think usually the stereotype is that a hafu is someone who is Japanese half and some kind of English speaking language half, whether it be Australian, American, British, etc. Um, obviously, you know, there are a lot more than that, but I think that's the common uh, way of looking at a hafu, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have said that Hafu is kind of like a derogatory term or whatever, but I mean, I, I don't really see it that way. And I think you can, you know, if people do use it in bad intentions, I think you can see it. Like you can see bad intention when you see it. So, you know, whenever people have called me Hafu, like Japanese people have called me Hafu, I've never really seen or felt any like bad intention from them. I think that's just like a very convenient term to just use for people like us. Why do people think, why do some people think it's derogatory? I think maybe because a lot of Hafus have somewhat of an identity crisis when it comes to whether they want to be perceived as a Japanese person or whether they want to be perceived as a foreigner in Japan. 
And, you know, that is definitely an issue for a lot of people. I mean, I certainly had my fair share of that growing up. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to be more in touch with my Japanese side or if I wanted to be more in touch with my foreigner side. And I felt like I was kind of trapped uh, in the middle. I always use this like bridge analogy when talking about that. Like it's like I'm kind of standing on the middle of a bridge and on one side of the bridge is Australia and the other side of the bridge is Japan. And I always thought if I crossed over to one side, then the bridge would collapse and I would never be able to go back to my other side. But I think the more I kind of interacted in both Australia and Japan and with Australians and with Japanese people, I realized that, oh, the, that bridge is a lot sturdier than it looks. And it can only be as sturdy as you make it uh, in in your mind. So it's just a matter of uh, this this balance of you can be both at the same time. And I think that's a great benefit that a lot of Hafu people have that I think a lot of Hafu people also don't see. Like, you can be as Japanese as you want living in Japan, but if you want to be a foreigner, you have that option. A lot of people don't have that option. So why would you not take advantage of that? Why would you not see the benefits of that and how a lot of people, especially in Japan, view Hafus on this like weird pedestal of... You can speak both English and Japanese at the same time. You have both cultures at the same time. And there's nothing wrong with trying to assimilate to the Japanese way of life and wanting to be as Japanese as you want and being really in touch with your Japanese side while living in Japan because that's just a nice, easy way to blend in. But I think, you know, with kind of how the rest of the world is looking at, you know, different cultures coming together and just like globalization, I think... The only reason why a lot of people have that idea in Japan is because this idea of different cultures integrating amongst one another is not really set in stone as much as the rest of the world is yet. But I think naturally, it's going to just, you know, the times are going to catch up. Japanese people are going to learn that foreigners exist and they're going to start living in Japan and you better get used to it and you better get, you know, you better start getting friendly with them because it's not going to stop. Yeah, I was just going to say... um I think from a long time ago, um, I, I actually didn't have much of an identity crisis, me personally, just because I just decided that I'm like a global citizen from the really beginning. And yeah, then, honestly. Yeah, you like... know, because, because especially if you have like a German mom, Japanese father living in Australia, like you just, mm. and, and you know, even when I say German, it's kind of mixed up in European language, you know, European language, uh, European countries and etc. Yeah, you can't... <laughs> I think global citizen is just, like, the easiest way to just, you know, simply put right. it. Right. Yeah. And, no, I absolutely agree. And, like, you know, if you look at it on a grander scale of things, like, being a global citizen like that has so many benefits, and it's something that I think a lot of people wish they could have, but it's just not really as celebrated in the open as I think it should be. Absolutely. And... Also, kind of another concept which I was just kind of thinking about. Um, I spent about seven years of my life in Japan too, um, mm. in Osaka and Tokyo. But at the same time, uh, currently we're in Seoul. Wherever I live, even if it's like Korea, um, it becomes mm. your home. And mm. it, it eventually is the place you call home, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think I appreciate that. Uh, what's the positive side of being a Hafu in Japan? Or what's the positive stereotype, maybe? You kind of have a wider view of the world. And I think just, I don't know. I think a lot of people have said that I'm just naturally more interesting 
than like say a fully Japanese person because I have a view of the outside world that is very different to a full Japanese person. You know, like even if you're a very well-traveled Japanese person, I think, you know, at the end of the day, culturally, you only have the Japanese side of you. But I have the Japanese side as well as all these other sides. So I think the, the, the stereotype is that, oh, you know, not only can you speak both English and Japanese, but you can also, you know, you have a wider view of the world. Like you have a better understanding. You have a completely different way of thinking and way of life that all these other people just can't comprehend. And that's really cool. And I think naturally, you know, especially with like younger Japanese people who are getting more and more interested in, uh, you know, global cultures and, you know, Americanization and just globalization, stuff like that. Like, that's cool to a lot of people. Being like, whoa, you're like from here, but also from somewhere else at the same time. Like, that's dope as hell. I guess the other stereotype is that Hafus are like all good looking, which is flattering, but also not true. I've met a lot of Hafus who are not that flattering. Obviously not going to name names, but, you know. They're, they're out there, you know, just because just because you're half Japanese, half something, it doesn't automatically make you good looking or, you know, the most dashing person in the universe. Like, there's a lot of unflattering halfus out there as well. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that, I always thought that was a weird stereotype. Were there any times which it was difficult for you um, or you were discriminated against because you were half Japanese, for example? The only time I was ever discriminated against, I guess, was not so much for me being Hafu, but more so for me being, again, the, Asi the only Asian kid in my school during high school. The, so this wasn't in Japan, this was more in Australia then? Yeah, I'd say this was more in Australia. I think in Japan, um, the discrimination very quickly goes away the moment I open my mouth and I start talking and they can clearly hear. Like, because when I speak Japanese, I don't really have an accent. So, you know, I think the moment I open my mouth and I start talking in Japanese, the, the discrimination very quickly goes away. And I think they realize that he's a Japanese guy. He just looks a little different to the rest of us. Yeah. I've personally had my fair share of advantages um, just because I know exactly what's happening in the Japanese, you know, context and situation. But sometimes mm. I would use the foreigner card to, just to, just to oh, yeah, make, yeah. make things easier for myself. For work no, or, definitely. You know, definitely. different situations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's get into uh, dating life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a real uh, 180 we went there, but sure. <laughs> How is dating life in Japan for you? I personally wouldn't really know because I've I've been in a committed relationship for the past six years. So, um, yeah. Uh, I guess, though, just from the stories I hear from other people, from both my Japanese friends and my foreigner friends who live here, um, it seems like a real pain in the ass. Like, I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm currently in a committed relationship because dating in Japan just seems like a pain. I mean, for one, a very obvious but also controversial take is that, you know, cheating is very much normalized in Japan, which I always thought was really, really weird. Like, you know, you can't, you can't cheat on a wife, but if you have a girlfriend, it's okay to cheat. And it's just this, like weird double standard that a lot of J young Japanese people have where they just, it's like, oh, he cheated on me. Oh, well, so be it. You know, that's the Japanese way of life. And I'm like, no, that's, no, that's really not. That's, that's a really weird norm that you have turned into a norm that should not be a norm. I mean, if you're single and you want to sleep around, 
cool, dude, you can do that all you want, all the, all the more power to you. But if you're, you know, going to put yourself into a committed relationship, whether that be boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, like, you know, you should, you should probably stick with it. <laughs> you know, my entire 21 years of my life in Australia, I was single for pretty much all the years except for one. Um, and I, I, I didn't really care. Like, you know, I, I went to an all boys school where, you know, it was just like, oh, you know, I, I, I smashed this chick the other day and it was, it was, it was awesome. Dude. You know, just like testosterone driven, you know, boys school, you know, playground banter. It was like, all right, cool, dude. Um, I'm just going to go home, play guitar and watch anime. You know, like I, I, I didn't really like care for it and I wasn't really like fussed about it. But I think a lot of young Japanese people, because this idea of getting into relationships is just so strongly pushed down your throat uh, for more reasons than one it's just uh yeah a lot of people just want the status of being in a relationship but aren't for the most part committed to it um so yeah i'm glad i never really joined that discourse because i feel i would get very tired of it very quickly why do you think japanese people do that why do you think japanese people cheat in your mind just because I've heard of so many situations, like not just, I mean, you mentioned that if you're ma married, you know, people don't really cheat, but I, I, I've seen so many situations in Japan where they're married and they're cheating and I'm just like, oh, yeah. And you wouldn't really see that much in Australia, for example, or mm. I don't know if it's happening, you know, in the, in the back and it's, it's just, it's, mm. you just don't see it. I don't know, but um, what's your take? I, I mean, I've always thought about this myself as well, because that's just, I feel that's one part of Japanese culture that I've never quite understood for the longest time. It's like, you know, obviously cheating happens everywhere, regardless of if you're married or not, or you're in a committed relationship or not, like that's, that's normal. But, um, you know, I feel th this stereotype of Japanese people cheat must mean that it's happening more in Japan than in most places. And I feel maybe it's because I think to a lot of Japanese people, marriage is more so like, again, like a status that is to be obtained, you know, similar to like having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, because I think just societally, you are seen on a, again, like a higher moral ground than if you were 40 and single, you know, which again, it's nothing wrong with if you ask me like it's it's completely your choice but it's just this like weird stigma like societal stigma that japan has created where married good uh not married bad but obviously you know some people aren't as committed as other people i also um think that in japan um prostitution is not considered like cheating I hear that yeah sometimes definitely it's uh yeah you know and and i was about to say like i think you know the overabundance of things like soap lands and uh you know just like fuzoku and stuff like that is uh i wouldn't say it's like yeah brothels yeah i i wouldn't say it's like you know a direct cause of that but it's i feel it's certainly not helping sorry i was just gonna say like one thing which i realized that in Japan, every train station that you go to, there's always like a hostess club or there's like all these, you know, from clubs to, you know, brothels to etc. And I was always thinking, man, like, is this, is this all, 
like okay for the kids to just you know walk around those alleyways you know because in every train station they have something like that typically even if you go to the countryside there's like snacku or something like snack like as in like a, a place where there are some hostesses and so on and I think you know, um I think just from how I see it the way that sexuality is uh exposed to kids in Japan and just like younger children you know younger adults in Japan is very like concealed but also not concealed at the same time like you know in Australia we have like you know sex education classes that you can start taking from as early as like year five right so you know it's it's very much like sexuality is like put on the table from a young age and being like this is how sex works this is how babies are made you know now you know kind of thing but i feel sex in that instance uh, in japan is very much like a seen as like kind of a taboo thing where like if you talk about it publicly you'll be like oh no don't talk about that that's that's you know hashita well, you know that's, that's that's very very bad you know but at the same time kids can walk into a don quixote and go into the tenga section without a staff member coming up to you and being like you're not allowed in there right so it's it's like Japan has this very odd back and forth flip of putting sexuality right in your face while not like, you know, concealing it, you know, away. And I think that, again, d explains the whole reason why, like, you know, the, the Japanese porn industry is literally the biggest porn industry in the world or that you know, we have things like animated porn, like hentai, or like we have, you know, Tenga being one of the biggest, you know, companies in Japan. And just like, we have a lot of things that celebrate sexuality in Japan, but it's not celebrated in a public space. When you are given a hint of something that might exist that people say is bad, naturally i think for a lot of people you're going to get curious as to what that is so you're going to want to go and explore it and what happens when that happens is you you know there's no there's no one telling you to to, to hold the brakes there's no one telling you to like stop going further down the rabbit hole so you end up getting into more and more of the rabbit hole to the point where you start going to brothels, you start going to soaplands you start thinking that you know being in a committed relationship and going to a soapland is a normal thing because hey you're just a monkey in shoes who wants to have sex you know so i think it's uh i think fundamentally yeah the problem is that japan doesn't know societally what to do with sexuality and uh if i knew the solution to it i would have said it by now but i uh i i, I don't in your mind why do you think why do you think japan you know, is is like that because um, you know, mm. from my observation itself, Japanese people are not really good at really inventing something like a crazy new industry, but they're really mm. good at making so many segments of something which already exists and then right. just make it really good. Um, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or do you think it's the fact that you know, because it's something which they can't really they have to suppress it almost becomes deeper and deeper and you just get more into it i'm not quite sure how mm. what 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 do you what do you think it's probably the latter for what you said it's it's more so of a matter of this societal pressure to be like everybody else to be a functioning member of society to kind of be the cog 
inside of a, a million cog system and if you if you step out of line then you're going to be the one that's going to be outcasted to the side and i think you know that that applies in japan to other things that aren't sexuality you know like if you were that one kid weird kid in school who showed any hint of individuality you were the weird one but in a lot of english-speaking countries like australia and you know in america and the uk individuality is very much celebrated from a young age of being like hey you're not like the rest of them you do you you know no, no one can do you better than you but in japan that's not really the case and i think because that ideology is implanted into a lot of japanese kids from a very young age up all the way until their adulthood it's this idea of i might have these you know deep feelings towards something that isn't normally exposed out publicly by other people i have to hide it i have to suppress it i have to keep it within myself and if i let it all out then i'm going to be shunned i'm not going to be part of that system anymore and that's terrifying and it's really messed up right because it's like japan has so many weird cool wacky things that the outside world looks at and goes whoa that's that's only a thing that exists in japan but to a japanese person's eyes that's something that they can't really express publicly and that's something that they have to keep away from other people and it's uh yeah it's 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 very uh unfortunate i think mm. because if individuality was celebrated in japan it would make for a really cool society because you're an individual who is exposed to a lot of really cool unique things even from a global standpoint but because you know if you step out of line you're fucked essentially you know i think a lot of japanese people don't realize how good they actually have it um and it's a shame you know because like hey man i've seen my fair share of hentai and it's 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 some pretty cool shit out there <laughs> that they just don't realize exists and the rest of the world realizes it exists and they love it and that's why so many foreigners love japan and love everything that japan has to offer and a lot of Japanese people sit back and look at it and be like, why are all these foreigners interested in Japan? Why is it Japan specifically? And it's because they don't realize it, right? Yeah. In Japan, uh, I think it has like the highest level of, you know, service in, mm. in one of the highest levels of service in the world. But at the same time, I almost feel like that's almost suppressing yourself and even adding more stress sometimes for some individuals to be that particular person who is, you know, always trying to be polite and trying to, you know, trying to mm. be somebody else. And maybe that's manifesting itself in a different way, you know, from... Yeah. Yeah, maybe. No, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, I think a, a great example of that is you can go to a McDonald's in Japan and you can order a smile. And it's like... <laughs> You know, when, when I remember when they first started introducing that, I was like, that is so unbelievably cruel to the people who work at McDonald's. Like, everybody knows they are not getting paid enough to dish out smiles to people. And, like, you know, I've never personally done it because I feel anyone who does that is an absolute jackass who has no sympathy whatsoever for people who work in those kinds of places. But, like... You know, it's just stuff like that, right? Where like, again, it, it's it's all it all comes back to like this age-old, you know, rooted tradition of okyakuwa kamisama, which means the the customer is god, right? And and this ideology has existed in Japan since ancient times. 
I feel to a lot of people who need to hold on to jobs like that just purely to live off of and, you know, live another day, you know, some people don't want to do that. Some some people don't want to be this, like, peppy, you know, over-the-top, you know, customer service type of thing. And I think, as you said, that, I think, you know, subconsciously builds a lot of pressure to the point where one day, if you don't let it out, it's just going to explode. Whether that be in a positive way or a negative way, it's it's going to explode and get out of hand. And, you know, again, because societally, there is no outlet for a lot of Japanese people to slowly let the air out gradually it's it, it just builds up and builds up and builds up to the point where yeah you know you get really messed up stuff and like you know i've always said that's one of the big reasons why whenever you see a piece of news in japan of like a crime that was committed it's either zero or a hundred there is no in between it's like it's like the most like whatever this is barely a piece of news type of thing to like the most messed up like massacre level murder spree that someone went on because they got sick of their job right it's like and i think that's very reflective again on not being able to let out stress not being able to let out and be an individual and be free essentially from these like societal norms that japan has just to add to that i think people have a hard time just saying no no does not exist it's it's uh whenever a jap i've always said whenever a japanese person says yes that means it's a maybe and when they say maybe it means no yeah <laughs> pretty yeah. much pretty much yeah how do you currently make a living is it just through youtube ads or do you do sponsorship deals or etc too it's kind of a mixed bag um my main thing is obviously from youtube ads and sponsorships i put on my youtube channel but uh obviously because I run multiple channels. I have two of my own channels and then Trash Taste, we have three channels. So it's this kind of combination of five different channels all coming into one. But I also do uh, Twitch live streaming every now and then. Uh, I release music, which kind of just, it doesn't make me a living, obviously, but, you know, is enough to, as like pocket change. Um, and then I do, you know, the occasional odd jobs, like doing voice acting roles, doing modeling gigs, doing uh photo shoots and stuff like that and just kind of trying to expand my territory as much as possible um my dad always told me you know never put your eggs in one basket and uh you know i i, I took that you know very greatly um to kind of just make sure that i'm not reliant on this one thing because obviously with a job like youtube you know one wrong move and you could be out of a job tomorrow you know, it's it's a very, like, fickle thing. People can't really, I guess, foresee how long someone can realistically maintain a job on YouTube because it's just such a new market. I mean, even the most OG OGs who still do this for a living have only been around for 15 years or so, which, if you compare it to, say, a job like acting or TV or any kind of desk job, that's nothing that's a really really new market like we still don't know if someone realistically can be a youtuber for 30 40 years because it just hasn't been around for that long so i've always had this mentality of my channel could die tomorrow my my career could die tomorrow one wrong move one weird decision by the higher ups at youtube one bad video one bad tweet can get me cancelled it's all gone up in smoke so I never took my chances with that, so, you know, ever since YouTube became my full-time job, I always thought, okay, how can I diversify my income? How can I 
make a bunch of safety nets just to make sure that if one of them breaks, the other one underneath can catch me. In one of your videos, you were mentioning that you've, you've got like two strikes or something. Oh yeah, many times. Yeah, many times. Like, are you, are you afraid that your, you know, anime man could just disappear out of YouTube? To be honest, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't disappeared yet. <laughs> it should have. With, uh, with how much I was playing around with copyright and uh, community guidelines, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it's still around, to be honest. It's, uh, it's survived two strikes, I think, three times now in nine years. So uh, it's very much like I don't really even get surprised anymore when I get strikes just because I know that every time I get a strike, it just really drives home that my career, my living, is in the hands of a person I don't know exists. Why did you get a strike? The first time my channel almost died was because of copyright. So, you know, doing YouTube, con uh, doing anime content on YouTube, you obviously have to use anime footage. Right. Um, and in Japan, fair use is not a thing. So when you know, uh, anime companies started to get this news of, oh, there's, there's these, like, there's these anime YouTubers who are making content on our content without our permission. We have every right to strike them down. So uh, back in, I think it was around, like, 2014, 2015, uh, before the adpocalypse, there was this massive surge in the anime YouTube world where a lot of, uh, you know, Toho and Toei and all these, like, big IP holders were coming onto YouTube and just striking videos down. And uh, a lot of channels disappeared because of that, which is really unfortunate. But luckily, uh, I managed to survive by the skin of my teeth before YouTube kind of stepped in and went, Hey, hey, calm down, calm down. You know, they have, they have the fair use. It's all right. It's okay. Um, so I survived that. And then as I started to explore more content... Uh, I, you know, naturally went on to, like, a little more, like, sexual content, especially when it comes to, like, you know, hentai content, for example. Uh, you know, as someone who has a personal interest in that side of things, just as a form of entertainment, I started to make content on that. Obviously, YouTube got a lot more stricter when it comes to community guidelines on that side of things, so, uh, there was a bunch of videos where I got community guideline strikes. Um, so, uh, my channel almost died because of that. Sometimes there's been like a multiple instance where I would have two community guideline strikes and then I would also get a copyright strike and you know that that was definitely terrifying. But uh yeah, so far my channel has hasn't been completely shut down yet and I think even if it does get shut down, I do thankfully have a contact at YouTube now that can help me out with stuff like that because for the most part I do follow the rules and I think a lot of those strikes are completely unfound. YouTube's not a perfect system, so there's not much that can be done. You just kind of have to live with it and uh, hope that YouTube doesn't take the side of, you know, whoever is trying to take me down, yeah. Yeah, because three strikes and pretty much the channel would be gone, right? Yeah, yeah, nine years worth of work just gone. What would you say was your, you know, biggest struggle that you went through for YouTube itself? Um, was there a moment which it was quite difficult for you financially or was there a moment which you you know you were almost thinking man maybe i, I can't make it as a youtuber i think maybe not just because there was never a point in my youtubing career where i wanted to be a youtuber i think i always kind of took youtube as not so much this like uh, employment opportunity 
but rather this thing that would always be around as just a hobby. And I think up until I'd say maybe like, you know, as early as like maybe three or four years ago, I didn't really take YouTube all that seriously as a job. I always just view it again as a hobby that just paid my bills. So I think that mentality definitely saved me from the stress of this like overwhelming pressure to like make it as a content creator on YouTube just because I never really saw it as this like legitimate business you know endeavor um obviously not until you know i started working with other people for example like trash taste definitely helped me kind of put myself in that business mindset because you know when it was just me and my main channel i the only person i had to think about was myself you know all the responsibility was on me if i messed up then the only one who's going to pay for the consequences is myself but once i started trash taste and i joined the agency now i had to think about other people now other people's livings and careers were on the line so that definitely made me kind of snap into reality to be like oh now this is like an actual job now there is like you know pressure on you to succeed because if you don't succeed then these other people you care about are also not going to succeed do you have any pressures for for putting out content for example because you've been doing it for nine years and i understand that you know it's a hobby but at the mm. same time, nine years is a long time, and I wouldn't be surprised that somebody would go through like a burnout period even, mm. uh, or need a break. But sometimes YouTube, or as a content creator, doesn't really give you breaks, you know? Was there any moment which you felt was quite difficult? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially for someone like me who, from a very early point in his career, was pigeonholed into the anime genre. Um, you know, there were times where I wanted to kind of expand upon the videos I wanted to make because obviously as much as I love anime and, you know, that whole subculture, I also have other interests like music and film and all that kind of stuff. So there were times where I would try and make something that was not anime and then my audience would come out and be like, oh, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch anime content. Can you make a Can you make a video on X anime? Can you make a video on Y anime? Blah, 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 blah. And it was always just like anime content. And, you know, I don't blame my audience for that. I blame myself for calling myself the anime man. And that's, you know, one big reason why I regret naming myself that. But, you know, it can't be helped. And now that that's just kind of become a brand of mine, it's, uh, you know, a lot of newcomers to the channel look at the content I make now and go, oh, where's the anime content? So, you know, there was always that pressure to, like, live up to my name, I guess, um, that I gave myself. But, you know, I very soon realized uh, if I do just kind of answer to the audience and try and live up to that namesake and just pump out content about anime that, you know, I still love, but... It, I also don't want to just do because it satisfies my audience. You know, I want to make content that satisfies me first and foremost, and then hopefully satisfies my audience second. Um, because otherwise, if you just do stuff that entertains your audience and don't think about yourself, that's how YouTubers break down. That's how YouTubers go into burnout. That's what makes YouTubers quit entirely. And I don't want to do that because I enjoy making content. I enjoy making YouTube videos. I enjoy being creative, but I also like the freedom that I have to be able to do all sorts of different things regardless of my branding. So what's your ultimate goal as a content creator then? 
the ultimate goal, I guess, for me, even though I don't really like setting myself goals, but, like, the ultimate, I guess, like, transition for me is uh, that I probably will end up doing something that's not necessarily bound to YouTube because, you know, uh, as much as nowadays I think a lot of people see YouTube as, like, the final destination of this is your career and this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, I've always viewed YouTube as a very elaborate and large stepping stone to something greater and you know i think youtube is very much like the modern day equivalent of creating a resume if you, if you treat it that way of like hey this is all the things i made this is all the things i can do in video format and these are all the things i'm interested in you know now what what more can i do and i think that's why i've been for the last couple of years especially been really putting my efforts into things that are outside of youtube and outside of video content just because you know, I'm I'm very much a person who doesn't stick to something for a long time. I, I I'm very much uh, all over the place when it comes to my interests. I always want to try something new. So, you know, just doing video content for nine years now has already been a miracle that I never thought would last this long. So I want to maintain that, obviously, but I also want to challenge myself, and I don't want to just get comfortable and be put into this like monotonous endless cycle of wake up make anime content go to sleep you know repeat type of thing i don't know what that next step is but whatever it is i'm going to utilize the the freedom of making whatever i want on youtube to hopefully one day be like ah oh, that's what i want to do let's do that do you have some exciting videos or collaborations you would want to share. Actually, I saw a few collaborations with PewDiePie and I heard that he's moved to Japan. I, I just hung out with him a couple of days ago, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and I, uh, him and I are very close. Yeah. Yeah. How's it like making content with Felix? Um, Felix is really interesting because he is one of the most humble dudes I've ever met in my life. I mean, I can very confidently say that if I was in his position, I would absolutely be up myself, as I think most people would be, but it's uh, it's incredible how humble and down-to-earth that guy is, and every time I hang out with him, you know, whether that be on video or off video, I've hung out with him definitely way, way more off video than just on video, because he's just a really fun guy to be around, and him, you know, our interests are very much the same. It just, it shocks me. I, I There's always that moment, whenever I come back home, of being like, oh yeah, I forgot that's PewDiePie. That's literally the biggest dude on the platform and is like a big inspiration for, you know, why a lot of people, including myself, make content on this platform. And it's just like, you know, we talked about ultimate goals. I think that's where I want to be in life, where no matter, you know, how big and grandiose of a thing I may become, if I ever become that, you know, it's always just a matter of like, just be a nice person, just be humble, just be down to earth, don't be up yourself and everyone will like you. But, um, you know, when it comes to, like, making videos now, I am very much a person where if I don't like you personally, then I won't collaborate with you, no matter what. Like, you know, the, there's been lots of big YouTubers that I've gotten in contact with who I just didn't really mesh with all that much, um, who I'm just like, well, I could collaborate with you, that'd be great to feed my ego and get the clout, but at the end of the day... I'm not going to enjoy it because I don't really like this person. So what's the point? We appreciate you doing an interview with us then. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, of course, of course. No, no, I mean, like, it's it's so, it, to be honest, it was so crazy 
how you guys email me because I've been watching your guys' videos forever. So it's just really cool that I'm, I'm, I'm like, yes, I finally get to be on Asia. So let's go. <laughs> wow. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. 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 But like, you know, I love doing collaborations. I love, you know, meeting new people and collaborating in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, I, I recently released a video where I asked a hundred YouTubers what their favorite anime was. And, you know, that was a, that was a really fun video because I got to not only collaborate with all these people who I really admire and respect as content creators and I like as people, but also it's just a great way to be like, look at all these amazing people that I'm friends with and that I get to be friends with, you know, and, and it's great. You know, that's, uh, I think that's the, the biggest joy I get in content creating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, for us, we were just thinking it would be really, really cool if we can collaborate with a ton of influencers and even tackle mm. social issues, for example. And, you know, we can just focus just just like the way how, you know, Mr. Beast does it. But uh, mm. but we can create different types of impact, even within Asia or the world um, by, yeah, just uniting. I think and mm. that would also be like a really cool uh, video in the future uh, if we have yeah. a chance to, to make those. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, those kinds of like community coming together videos is uh, just just really cool. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Do you have any advice for young people who want to follow their passion like you, but they mm. don't really know what to where to start? It's just a matter of just doing it just trying it out um don't be afraid of failure as as cliche as that sounds you know it, it is true it's like a lot of people have too much self-doubt uh to even you know put that one foot forward in whatever it is that they do so it's like you know don't be you know whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger you know as they say so just try it out just get that video out there and if you and don't do it if you don't enjoy it i think that's the biggest piece of advice i want to give to people don't do it because you want to get famous don't do it because you want to get rich don't do it because you want the clout because at the end of the day you could have all of those but if you're miserable then you're miserable like nothing nothing is gonna you know the only thing that can make you happy doing all of this thing is if you're happy and you know no no amount of clout or money or fame is going to get you that and uh you know i've met plenty of content creators and people in that position to really know that now um to be like you know do it because you want to do it not because it's you know not because it's something that you strive to be i think is probably the best piece of advice i can give you know you ended on a really nice last piece of advice um thank you <laughs> thank you so much for your yeah, time no today and uh really appreciate uh, uh you you making this happen yeah likewise thank you i can finally i can finally text my parents being like i made it onto asian Pulse, guys. <laughs> i did it <laughs> well maybe if there's a occasion that we can collaborate again in japan or something that would be pretty awesome yeah hell yeah please i'd love that yeah sounds good okay thanks so much yeah, no worries. Thank you.